All right, Romans 1. Um, we've been going verse by verse through Romans 1, starting with verse 1. and uh, What's it been? Probably eight months, seven, eight months now. Yeah. And we're, we're actually going to finish chapter 1 today, which is a, a miracle because um, we'll be dealing with four verses, but three of them are pretty much saying the exact same thing. So we're going to be finishing up here. We'll be in verse 29. And if you remember from <clears throat> from from way back, pretty that this is Paul writing to Roman Christians. We know that because he says, um, "To all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints." They were Christians there. That's who he was writing to. And he, he in writing to these Christians, he said he was going. He was ready to preach the gospel to you also who are at Rome. That's what he's doing here. This is Paul's exposition or systematic theology of his gospel, of the gospel. And he, remember, he starts, and we go from um, verse 18 here is when he gets into the bad news, and he starts with the bad news, and then he gets into the gospel later on in chapter 3. What happened to my backpack? Oh, I'm so messed up today. My notes are in here. Um, from verse 18, we see what Paul does and instead of jumping right into the gospel, which is the good news, he starts with the bad news. And he starts that in verse 18, for we see the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. It means that they suppress the truth. And remember, we've been going over this and this has been We've seen it in verse 24, we've seen it in verse 26, we saw it in verse 28, that God gives them over. If you remember this, that we, we, we've been talking about this. Men suppress the truth, they want to be in their sins, and therefore God gives them over. And what does God give them over to? Remember what we saw last week, um, verse 20. 28, it says, And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. So He gave them over to a reprobate mind, or what does it say in ESV again? A debased mind. A debased mind to do sin. That's what this, that's what this says. Remember, he, he gives them over and they go and do the sin. And we see, the, we see more of that here in these... Uh, coming verses in verse I'm going to go ahead and read it verse 29 through the end of the chapter being filled with all unrighteousness fornication, wickedness, covetousness maliciousness, full of envy murder, debate, deceit malignity whispers, backbiters, haters of God despiteful, proud boasters, inventors of evil things disobedient to parents without understanding covenant breakers without natural affections, implacable, unmerciful, who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them to do them. I have three points on this today. First is filled to the brim. Second point is filled with sin. And the third point is their cup overfloweth. So what the first thing that we see when we go to when we jump into these texts like this, the first thing we see is what what is the great doctrine that this text is teaching us? And these verses right here, the great doctrine that this is teaching us is a doctrine of total depravity. 
And that's where we, that's what before we get into the total depravity part, we get to see first filled to the brim. It says, being filled with all unrighteousness. With all unrighteousness, they, be, they, they were filled. Remember, these men were given over to depraved, debased, reprobate minds, to do those things which are not convenient, to do sins. God gave them over. That We saw that, that was their judgment. Their judgment was even though they wanted to sin, God gave them over to more sin. And that was their judgment. And now we see what those things are here in these verses, the sins that, that they were given over to. But we must see that they are filled with them. It wasn't that they just dabbled in this sin or in that sin. It was that they were filled with them. That's what it says, being filled. And the word here, it literally means filled to the brim. If it was like you had a cup and you filled that thing up to the very, very top where you couldn't walk across the room without spilling up. That's what they're filled with. They're filled with sin all the way to the very top. There's not room for anything else. They're so full of sin that there's not room for anything else. Full of unrighteousness. God gave them over to that. And if you remember, I've used it a couple times, this analogy almost, which they, they always fail at some point, but almost as that God has them on a leash. And they want that sin so bad. And then at some point in time, God lets go of the leash and they run headlong right into it. And that's all they want. But there's only one thing that was keeping them from that, and it was the mercy of God. It was God holding them back. And when, when they get to the point that He lets go, it's over. They run straight into it, and they don't, they don't ever turn back. And they were filled. And that's what, that's what it means to be filled with unrighteousness. It was full of iniquity. That's another way of saying it, right? We, we've seen that those texts full of iniquity. And the iniquities are listed right here. So we see they're full to the brim of unrighteousness. And then we see that they're filled with sin here. They're filled with iniquity. Being filled with all unrighteousness, as I just read all of those, in three verses, Paul lays out sin after sin after sin. And it covers everything. That's the doctrine of total depravity here. That that's what, this is where men are at. They're not out here thinking good thoughts. They're not out here wishing that they could worship God. They're not out here seeking, I want to find God. They're full of sin. And we were too. And apart from the grace of God, that's where we would be at right now. Calvin says of this portion of Scripture, as he had hitherto referred only to one instance of abomination, if we remember what that is, it was this men with men and women with women, which prevailed indeed among many, but was not common to all. He began here to enumerate vices from which none could be found free. For though every vice as had as it has been said, did not appear in each individual, yet all were guilty of some vices, so that every one might separately be accused of manifest depravity. So you read through that list and you say, well, I didn't do that, or I didn't do this, but you can't read through that list and say, I didn't do any of it. You can't read through that list and say, like the rich young ruler, all these things, I've, I've kept your law since my youth. It's a lie. 
Jesus exposed him, and Paul exposes all of us here in the next two chapters as we get into chapter 3, 2 and 3. And this is where mankind is at. This is not some unique outer fringe of humanity, but all of humanity outside of grace. That's the only thing mankind can do outside of Christ. You read through this list, that's all mankind does outside of Christ. He can only sin, and it doesn't even bother him. You know, when we sin as a Christian, we, we still sin, we still do these things that are in this list, but it bothers us, and we repent. They, it doesn't bother the unbeliever. They love it. Turn with me to Romans 8, uh, Romans 8 verse 7. Zach, you mind reading 7 and 8? Uh, sure. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You see that right there? I know anybody that's been to public school when you said, Can I use a restroom, teacher? And they said, uh, Well, you can. But the question is, may I? You have the ability to. That's what this verse is saying. They cannot obey the, the law of God. They do not have the ability to obey the law of God. It says also, so then that they are, then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. They don't have the ability to. They can't please God. And they, they can't obey God. That's, they, this is talking about people outside of Christ. Just like we're seeing it right there in Romans 1. He cannot please God. He cannot obey God. And he's at enmity with God. He's an enemy of God. Turn up to uh, 1 Corinthians 2. I quoted this verse last week. 1 Corinthians 2, 14. and 15. Jesse, you mind reading it? Yeah, sure. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. The person with the Spirit makes judgment about all things, but such a person, person is not subject to merely human judgments. You notice that, that key phrase in there, they cannot, again, it said, the natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them. So he can't know them. Even if you present the things of God, as I prayed this morning for Jason that's down there preaching, he can preach till he's blue in the face to people. But unless God gives them understanding, they cannot understand. They just can't. That's where mankind is at. He cannot obey God. He cannot please God. He cannot understand spiritual things. What else? Turn back to uh, John chapter 6. That was his favorite verse for a lot of people. Uh, verse 44. You got it? Yep. It says... Now this is Jesus speaking. He says, No man can come to me 
except the Father which has sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. You see the same thing here, right? No man can come to me. The ability. No man has the ability to come to Christ. Just like no man has the ability to please God, no man has the ability to obey God, no man has the ability to understand spiritual things, and no man has the ability to come to Christ. And I know there's some that say that we do have the ability, but those people are dead wrong. That's what Jesus just said right there in the text. No man can come to me, except the Father which sent me draws him. The mankind is spiritually dead. This is what happened at the fall. This is what happened back in the garden when Adam ate of the tree. Mankind died. Not, he didn't die physically at that spot. That brought about physical death that came later. But he died spiritually right then when he ate, when he disobeyed God. And it wasn't, some, it wasn't like it was just the fruit that killed him spiritually. It was the disobedience that killed him. It was the sin that killed him. And that's where men are at. And every single person born into this world besides Christ has been born spiritually dead. They come into this world spiritually dead. They're conceived in sin. They're born sinners. And dead men and women cannot come to Christ. They cannot understand spiritual things. Just as a dead person in the grave can do nothing but lay there and rot, so is a spiritually dead person. No matter how great your message is, no matter how persuasive you are, no matter how loving you are, they can never come to Christ. It's impossible for a corpse to come to Christ. Christ must call them out of the grave. Just as He called Lazarus out of the grave. If He would have called Lazarus out of the grave, Lazarus would have stayed in the grave. And it didn't matter who went there and, and cried out Lazarus. If it wasn't Christ, Lazarus stays there dead. I know the objection. Doesn't God call everybody? Doesn't God draw everybody? He, get, he brings them up to this point and gives them a chance to, to repent and believe. <clears throat> we know that's not the case according, obviously, from verse 44 there. He says, No man can come to me except the Father which had sent me draw him. And then what else does he say? And I will raise him up at the last day. So every single person that's drawn to Christ is raised up at the last day. Obviously, that's not everybody, right? Because there's a place called hell, and there's a lot of people there. And there's a lot of people going there every single day. God calls whoever, whoever He wants, and those are the ones that He saves. And those are called His elect. Those are the ones that He's chosen for salvation from before the foundation of the world, as the Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4 says. That's the difference between the believer and the unbeliever. It's the work of God. It's not your free will. I dare say this, we don't have a free will. Nobody does. Because your will is affected by something. Whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, your will is affected by something. If you're outside of Christ, you're a slave to sin. Sin controls your life. 
If you're inside of Christ, you're a slave to righteousness in Christ. And he's the one controlling you, your life. You're not free. And I think in our text in Romans 1 helps demonstrate that, does it not? Our whole context here is looking at man suppressing the truth and being given over to sin. I'm going to turn back there to Romans 1. The whole context we've seen, verse after verse. Remember Paul's been saying it over and over again that men suppress the truth and they know God and they know when they knew not God or, and glorified Him not as God, He gave them over. We see that over and over again here in our text. And then we come to our direct context here in verses 29 through the end of the chapter. And we see the end of that giving over. And it's being full of sin. They don't have a choice between righteousness and unrighteousness. They don't have a choice of being a hater of God or a lover of God. About being merciful and unmerciful. This is who man is. You know, I want to say, because I know um, I was reading something yesterday. I think it was uh, R.C. Sproul. And he was talking about how a lot of people think that the two doctrines are at enmity. And they need to be reconciled as in like... How, how man is enslaved to sin if he's not in Christ, and, and how while well, we have free choice, we don't have a, a will that is free from bondage of anything. Because like you said, we're either a bond, uh, we're a bond servant of Christ, we're a bond servant of sin. But it's it's that we, we do have the faculties, which is why we're guilty. We have the faculties mm-hmm. to make a decision. We know that what we're doing is wrong, and we willfully do what is wrong for not in Christ. But if we are in Christ, it's Christ gives us a new nature, gives us new affections, and so we won't strive for sin, instead we'll strive for Christ, because Christ has made us new. Mm-hmm. And he, Paul goes more, actually um, displays a little bit more of that here in chapter 2, when he gets into the conscience. I mean, obviously we know from here from chapter 1 that man knows God exists, and still, remember last week we, we talked about almost like, Man has this examination of God, like he, he examines God and finds him lacking something, so he pushes him to the side. That's what we saw last week, and, and that's talking about fallen man. That's not talking about Christians. That's talking about fallen man that has done this. So man, mankind knows God exists. Remember, we have already saw this in uh, verse 21, verse, well, verse 19 because they because that which may be known of God is manifest in them for God has showed it to them and it says for the invisible things of the world from the creation of the world are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made even his eternal power and Godhead so that they are without excuse because that when they knew God they glorified him not as God neither were thankful so this whole context here, we're seeing that men know. It's not that they're agnostic or atheist or anything like that. They know. And they still push them to the side and then God gives them over to this. And this is verses 29 through 32 is what man is. That's what man is. What we also saw being... We didn't look at this, but if 
Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, where it says that they're, they're dead. Mankind is dead spiritually. He cannot do any of these things. This is what He can do. This is what He's full of. He's full of sin. And this is not describing some alien life form or anything either. This is describing you and I outside of Christ. This is describing your loved ones. Nobody is free from this depravity. Nobody. We all, like sheep, have gone astray, and we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, right? But praise God that this list of sins here were placed into His Son's account, and He walked to the Roman cross to be murdered for us, for His people. Praise God that when I look at these, these do not define me. These sins right here, though I may partake in them, they do not define who I am. I am in Christ, and that defines me. And praise God that the sins that I have committed that are on this list were placed on Christ as He walked to that cross and was bloodied and murdered and hung there naked, paying for sin as the wrath of God was poured down upon Him in His place instead of my place. Because that's where all this is going for these for this, these men that Paul is describing here. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. That's what this is happening here. And that's what happened on the cross. The wrath of God was revealed from heaven on Christ in our place as Christians. And His elect, those that aren't even Christians yet, Jesus Christ paid for their sins. Just as those future sins that we haven't committed yet, Christ paid for them too. Not just our past sins. He paid for all the future sins too. Every single sin that I will ever do or you will ever do was paid for by Christ and He rose from the dead three days later and defeated death and defeated hell and defeated Satan and defeated sin. And He ascended to His Father and sat down victorious over those things. Praise God where it says, He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. The key word is in Him. Outside of Him, you pay for your own sins. And you'll never pay for them fully. Praise God that He lived a perfectly righteous life, never for one second taking part in those sins mentioned here then died a sinner's death that we deserve in our place, then rose from the dead. That's the good news, brethren. That's what we need, too. And that's what the world needs. I'm sure all of us probably watched some kind of news this past week. The, the world needs this, the good news. Why? Because it's full of bad news. It's full of sin. It's filled to the brim with sin. And it needs the good news. My last point here is, their cup overfloweth. And it's from verse 32. You see Paul lists all these sins from verse 29, 30, and 31. He just lists one sin after another after another. And then verse 32, he says, Who knowing the judgment of God, there we go again, they know the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. 
I think he takes a step further here. Paul does. Remember back in verse 21, though, that even though they knew God, in verse, 20, or verse 18, that they suppressed the truth, these men are not ignorant. These men are not agnostic. These men are not atheists. These men know God exists. They've seen His eternal power in Godhead. And as we'll see in the next chapter, they have a conscience which also declares that there's a Creator, that there's a lawgiver. They have no excuse. Remember, and remember, that's where Paul is going. That's where Paul's taking us from verse 18 in chapter 1 all the way to verse 20 in chapter 3. He's taking us to show us how mankind is without excuse. And his mouth will be stopped. Paul spends two chapters to explain and prove that man is horrible. And we have preachers come along today that want to lift up man. They have man-centered theology, right? They spend their times writing sermons that do nothing but damn their listeners even more than they already are. Why would Paul go to great lengths to show the depravity of man if it weren't important? Why would he start his systematic theology of the gospel with the depravity of man? Because it's of utmost importance, right? This is where a lot of bad theology comes from. It comes from all kinds of other areas too, but a lot of it comes from this. Thinking that man is okay. That man can do good. Paul shows the opposite. In our text here, we don't just see that they know God again. We also see that they didn't just love their own sins, but they loved the sins of others. And this shows how totally depraved man actually is. He's so depraved that other people's rebellion against God is pleasing to him. And that's the opposite of God, right? Sin is a stench in the nostrils of God, but it's a sweet aroma to, the, to that sinner in that verse there. He is pleased by somebody else's sins. They're not even his sins. They're somebody else's rebellion against God, and he's pleased with them. They have pleasure in them. And God says, those that do such things are worthy of death. But man says, eat, drink, and be merry. You see that downward spiral? We, we talked about a couple months ago, we, we were talk, talking about this downward spiral. Man, that's what we're seeing here, this downward spiral of man. It's in the pit now. <laughs> it, it, we, we, we went down... To the very bottom of the pit. Not only are they full of sin, they're full to the brim, but they love other people's sins. They love it when somebody else is sinning. That's the pit at the end of the downward spiral. And that's the bad news. That man is totally depraved and he loves it. He's not just totally depraved, he loves the fact that he's totally depraved. He loves his sin. And it's easy to find that out. You turn on the television, you'll find out. Her application on this is though man is totally depraved, God saves totally depraved people. He saves people that cannot come to Him. He saves people that cannot obey Him. And He does so by His regenerating power, by making them alive, 
by giving them new hearts and by giving them faith and repentance and by placing them into His Son just as He did you and I. I cannot stand before God and boast someday that I was smarter than this person that I chose God. That, that I just woke up that one day and I felt like repenting and believing the gospel. God did all of it. However, there's a means to the end of God saving His people. And that means is preaching the gospel and loving your neighbor. They go hand in hand. I know I said that last week, but Scripture says it over and over again. So, nothing wrong with me saying it over and over again. Matthew chapter 5, verse 16 says, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. And then in Romans chapter 10, verses 13 through 15, it says, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on Him whom they had not believed? And how shall they believe in Him whom they had not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. They go hand in hand. Preach the gospel. Do good works. Second thing is don't be surprised when you see men sin. It shouldn't surprise us. It should surprise us that we don't see them sin more than what they do. A totally depraved heart knows one thing. That's sin. That's this list right here that Paul gives us. That's all the heart knows. It isn't surprising that we've had riots over the last year. <laughs> that doesn't surprise us. That, that shouldn't be a surprise to us. That sh shouldn't be a surprise to us of the looting and the stores and the burning down of businesses and any of this, the, the murders, the, the attack on Congress, all this stuff. It shouldn't surprise us one bit. This is what men do. And like I said last week, why does God have His church here on earth? To advance His kingdom and make more worshipers. So be gracious with unbelievers. They honestly can't help but to sin. Now that doesn't mean that we're... It means be gracious and be patient. It does not mean we approve of sin. The last thing is flee from sin. Turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5.1 Be therefore followers of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also hath loved us, and hath given Himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be named among you as become saints. Let it not be once name among you as become saints. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving thanks. For this you know, that no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man, who is an idolater, hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Brethren, we could have looked at probably thousands of verses to show that we're to flee from this stuff. 
right there in that Romans chapter 1, those sins that are mentioned there, flee from that stuff. And when you can't flee from it, when it's there, fight it and kill it. That's what we're supposed to do. And how, how do we do that? Well, we do that by, by scripture memorization, by prayer, by calling a brother or sister in Christ saying, I'm struggling. Pray for me. Help me. Jesus saved us from our sins, right? That's what it says in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. They just call His name Jesus, for He shall save His people from their sins. Not in their sins. He saved us to take us away from our sins. Not to leave you in that. He didn't die on a cross, so we'd keep on sinning willfully. So let's fight against it, brethren. Amen.